Chapter 13 of The Key to the Riddle, A Story of Huguenot Days by Margaret S. Comrie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13. Christophe's First Walk. No sooner was supper over that evening than Azarol, leaving mother and son alone together, made her escape from the dining-room, and betook herself upstairs to the little sitting-room which Christophe and she used as a schoolroom when visitors were at the chateau. And there, kneeling by the window, she looked out at the moonlit night, seeing nothing, however, of the silvered, fairy-like scene, so absorbed was she by the one thought, by to-morrow at midnight Gaston de Rohan would be gone. "'How sorrowfully Madame his mother will miss him!' she said to herself, repeating the words over and over, as if to force back into silence another thought that pressed, but in vain, for utterance. Left alone, Madame Eloise and Gaston established themselves in the boudoir. The young man, seating himself boyish fashion on the arm of his mother's easy-chair, talked brightly, doing his best to cheer both her and himself. Presently, with a well-assumed carelessness, he told her of the slight alteration he had made in his plans, explaining that for various unforeseen reasons he had found it would be necessary for him to start some hours earlier than he had intended. She took the news far better than he had expected, considering that, as he well knew, how she had been counting with a jealous miserliness the hours that were still left to her of his stay. She had been leaning her head against his arm, but now she straightened herself, her fingers hurriedly clasping and unclasping each other, those white fingers on which the jeweled rings hung so loosely, how thin they were. Gaston looked from them to the pale, sad face with the one feverish spot burning on the wasted cheek. "'Madre mia,' he said tenderly, putting his arm protectingly round her slender waist, "'carissima mia, this is too lonely a home for you. The solitude of your life here is more than you can bear. It is wearing you to a shadow. Leave Castelbrianza and return to Dauphine.' At Le Rocher de Rohan you would have—' She stopped him with a quick gesture. "'No, no, no!' she cried. "'Not there, not there!' And in her vehemence she half rose from her seat, then, conscious of a trembling in her limbs, sank back in her chair. "'What a hold the memory of my father's death has upon her even now!' reflected Gaston. "'It will not do to urge her further.' "'Do not ask me, my son, to go away from Castelbrianza. Here I am as happy—nay, not happy—that I can never be again. But—' I am as much at peace here as I could be anywhere. The place is lonely, do you say? That is what I want, to be alone." Then seeing his dissatisfied look, she added, "'I have Mademoiselle Montu. She is a great comfort to me.' "'I am glad Mademoiselle Montu is with you,' he returned quietly. "'But I mean that you shall have me also with you before very long. Assuredly this campaign must needs finish the war, and when it is over I intend to apply for my discharge and return home, at any rate for a time.' The estates both here and in France would be none the worse for having a master's oversight occasionally, and you would be glad to have your boy near at hand, eh, Madre Mia? If it had cost the young soldier something to make up his mind to interrupt his military career, the flash of joy that lit up his mother's face completely blinded him for the moment to the fact that there had been any self-sacrifice. "'To have you with me always! Ah, oh, Gaston, my boy, if only that might be!' Here, however, some unwelcome recollection came across her mind. Her face changed. The light faded from her eyes, and there crept into them again the old look of miserable unrest. When she resumed, her tone was sharp. "'Of what are we talking? A son of the House of de Rohan deserting the army? Never! Nay, Gaston, your duty is to your king and country. We were both forgetting ourselves.' "'A son's first duty, I hold, is to his mother,' he firmly rejoined. "'In serving mine, I serve my country. And to tell the truth, I am not now the blind enthusiast for bloodshed that I once was. These eternal campaigns, they sicken me for the aggrandizement of his most Christian majesty, or for the glory of France, which he will, we make war upon unoffending nations and take the very bread out of our people's mouths to pay the cost of these plundering raids. Starving poor at home, heart-rending scenes of ruin and destruction abroad, 
are such the true greatness of France. Gaston's voice had kindled with indignation, but seeing his mother's distressed look, he turned off the subject with a light laugh. Ah, madre mia, I am a sad dog, I know. In France there are those who call me reprobate, disloyal in politics, skeptical in religion, and I know not what beside. But in spite of it all, mummy, in spite of it all, I am your own boy still. And were I to think that my presence would help somewhat to chase away the desolate sadness from your home and heart, I— Again she interrupted him. It—it—it is not as you think, she murmured almost inaudibly, shrinking a little from him. Once, twice, she tried to go on, but failed, and finally broke down in a passionate fit of weeping. The sound of his voice, the touch of his caressing hand upon her hair, helped her as she struggled with herself, but it was some little time before she recovered her composure. Some nameless terror seemed to have seized her, and she clung to him, yet half fearful, apparently, that he would repulse her. "'Gaston,' she moaned, turning a wan face up to him, "'Gaston, your mother is a poor, erring woman. If you knew all, you would despise her. But you say you are my boy. You will not turn against your mother. Gaston, say you will not.' Her agitation was extreme, and she trembled from head to foot. With every endearing word he could think of, he tried to soothe her. "'Your son has loved you, Madre Mia, ever since he could lisp the dear name of mother, and he will continue to love you while life lasts,' he replied, but he doubted whether she heard him. "'Oft-times I have been tempted to tell you all,' she went on hurriedly, "'but I was not brave enough. When you are gone, doubtless I shall be glad that I kept silence. Better the past be buried with myself. Better—' She did not finish the sentence, but lay back in her chair, utterly exhausted. Patiently, Gaston waited. At last she sat up, a look of sudden resolution in her face. "'My son, I promise that on your return I will tell you all. I—hark, what is that?' With a startled exclamation she broke off and bent forward in an attitude of listening. "'I heard not,' returned Gaston, striding toward the door, which he opened to convince her that her nerves had played her false. But now even his ears were aware of a sound that seemed to come from a far-off part of the house. The cry— though muffled by distance, was like the scream of one either in fear or pain. A maidservant affrighted, was Gaston's thought, and he sprang toward the stair leading to the west wing of the building. But his mother gained it first. "'Christophe!' she gasped, while as if with winged feet she mounted the winding stairs, Gaston following close behind. And now the sounds reached them more plainly. Scream succeeding scream, but ever growing fainter, guided them to Christophe's bedroom. From another part of the chateau hurried old Jacqueline, while from all directions servants came running with pale, scared faces but Azarol was before them all. In the room where now all was still she knelt on the floor, her woolen cloak wrapped about something that lay on the rug in the front of the open hearth. "'It is but the shock,' she whispered to Madame Eloise, who knelt also and gazed with an agonized expression at the white unconscious face pillowed on the girl's arm. "'Nay, nay, Madame, it is but the shock. I think he is not much burnt.' Jacqueline, who was skilled in such things, had already hurried off to procure lint and oil, but Madame, turning to Gaston, gasped out, "'Ride for Brother Toma. There is none nearer.' The friar knows not. I will ride to Pinarolo for Monsieur Vaux, the surgeon of the garrison, replied de Rohan. Even at that supreme moment Azarol had room for another thought. Take one of the men-at-arms with you, monsieur. Replying to her pleading look with a reassuring, I will, mademoiselle, he was gone. It was in the grey light of the early dawn that the sound of galloping hoofs announced the return of Gaston with the surgeon. Lights burned in the chateau where already all were astir. Indeed, few of the household had been in bed that night. At the open hall door stood Azarol, and for a moment at least the shadow of care on her brow was chased away by her relief at the sight of the two riders now dismounting in the court. In answer to Gaston's inquiring glance she shook her head sorrowfully. "'He is still unconscious, monsieur.' "'Where, mademoiselle?' brusquely demanded the surgeon, his unprepossessing manner redeemed by a certain rough kindliness. But she stood aside, not offering to lead the way, and Gaston took the medical man upstairs. 
Left alone in the hall, Azarol leant wearily against a pillar, and slowly the shadow crept again into her face. But this time it was hardly anxiety that brought it there. It was heart pain. For the first time since the almost forgotten days of long ago at Castel Brianza, Madame Eloise had given the young Vaudois to understand that she was not wanted. With a peremptoriness that almost amounted to harshness, she had been ordered to leave the sick room and go to bed. Madame herself would see to Monsieur de Beauregard until the surgeon arrived. And were she to need help, Jacqueline was there. She wished for no one else. And Azarol had without a word obeyed. She would not return until she was sent for, she had proudly said to herself. But now, waiting alone in the hall, the suspense was more than she could bear, and she crept upstairs again, nervously eager to hear the surgeon's report. "'He will live. Ma foi, yes, he will live,' said M. Vaux, pulling absently at his long beard. "'He is not much hurt. And,' this half to himself, "'who can tell but this very accident may prove that he has greater vitality and strength of constitution than was heretofore supposed. It is an interesting case, a highly interesting case. I should be only too pleased to watch it, were it for the sake of medical science alone, madame.' Not a little reassured by this comforting verdict, Azarel hurried away to see to the providing of food for the hungry riders. An hour later she returned to the sick-room to try once more to persuade Madame to take some rest. Already there was a slight improvement perceptible in the condition of the patient, and the surgeon's words had been most cheering. Nevertheless, Madame Eloise refused absolutely to quit her post by the bedside. With a jealous fierceness she repulsed for the second time Azarel's gentle offer to take her place. Nor did she seem conscious that to outsiders this monopolizing care of her poor little ward was curiously inconsistent with her former indifference. Was her present devotion meant to be an atonement for past neglect? the servants asked each other. The long day wore on. Throughout these weary hours of waiting, Azarol, with a tender patience that Jacqueline marveled at, had borne the jealous irritability with which Madame Eloise persisted in refusing the most unobtrusive offer of assistance. But at length, as the afternoon was waning towards evening, physical weakness forced Madame to give way. She was fain to sink down in an easy-chair by the fire, and with just sufficient strength left to swallow a cup of strong broth which Jacqueline had in readiness, lay back, and in a moment had fallen into a heavy doze. Half an hour later a movement from the bed made Azarel spring quickly towards it. Christophe, his blue eyes wide awake and conscious, was looking wonderingly at his bandaged arm which lay outside the counterpane. Azarel bent over him. "'Cherie,' she murmured tenderly, and pressed her lips to his white forehead then stepped hurriedly aside to make way for Madame de Rohan, who had been aroused on the instant by the slight stir. Christophe smiled on recognizing his nurses. "'Was I naughty?' he whispered feebly, his gaze wandering from Azarel's face to Madame Eloise's, and lingering doubtfully yet lovingly there. "'I wanted to let Gaston know before he went away that I was a man and could walk. Eh bien, and I did it!' In the poor little voice even now there was something like a faint ring of triumph. I had tried standing many times, but alone that I might not affright you, Madame Eloise. But yesternight, bravo, I walked quite a long way, three, four big steps, quite straight and strong. But I last the room began to go round, and the fire ran to meet me, and—and— and... Azarol, fearing he would exhaust himself, softly laid her fingers on his lips. "'Go for the surgeon,' whispered Madame Eloise. He said to summon him when he awoke. But upon Azarol's turning to obey, she saw Monsieur Vaux and Gaston standing at the open door. Irritated by the girl's continuing to remain where she was, Madame again, with that jealous light in her eyes, pushed her aside. "'Go, girl, go, I tell you!' she commanded excitedly. "'Why do you stay here? You are not his—' "'Pardon, Madame, you are right,' Azarol hurriedly interposed. "'You are right. I am not his guardian. I will go.' The words, spoken in the soothing undertone one might use in quieting a frightened child, had a strangely calming effect upon Madame de Rohan. "'Forgive me, Monfa,' she whispered hastily. "'I—I—' I... I am not myself. Stay, stay with me, Azarol. And she laid an entreating hand on the young girl's arm. 
Monsieur Vaux was highly pleased with his little patient's condition, and still more so in the evening when he paid his third visit to the sick-room. "'He will do,' he said to the group waiting for his report. Glancing towards the bed where the boy lay sleeping soundly, he went on, addressing Madame de Rohan. "'We shall soon have Monsieur de Beauregard himself again. Cert more himself than in all his little life heretofore, for we shall have him on his legs. His first walk, I warrant, is not like to be his last. Within two weeks from now, I am ready to swear it, we shall permit him to venture upon his second. Cert it will be on crutches, but hearken, Mammy, even crutches will not be for long. That boy—he spoke with slow impressiveness— that boy, when he gets over this little accident, is going to get well and strong. Azarol and Gaston exchanged glances. Old Jacqueline uttered a fervent, "'The saints be praised!' But Madame Eloise spoke never a word. Slowly she turned her back to the bed and looked the surgeon straight in the face. Her own was pale and set, and her voice had the hard ring it was wont to have when she was putting a strong restraint upon herself. "'Strong and well, like other boys? Did you mean it, monsieur?' He bowed gravely. Madame, I am not the voice of the gods, but I believe it will be as I say. Well, do you ask? I confidently expect it. Strong? Perhaps never even at his best quite a Hercules, and neither well nor strong immediately. But patienza, as they say here, madame, patienza. One day— Monsieur Vaux paused a moment. He had turned again to the bed and was watching the fair little face resting on the pillow. And while he gazed he was recalling an incident of his visit in the afternoon. Dimly conscious that the big stranger who bent over him, and whose huge hands touched him so gently, was a doctor, Christophe had looked up into the rugged face above him, and murmured wistfully his old refrain as he dropped off to sleep, "'I want to be a man and walk.' There was a sudden softening now of the surgeon's rough voice, a sudden dimness in his keen black eyes. "'One day,' he said slowly, "'one day Monsieur Christophe de Beauregard is going to be a man and walk.'" End of chapter 13